Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. We are in the Wisdom, Love, and Beauty archives for our last in a series on the shadow. If you're starting here, you might consider starting with part one instead, but this one is fine too. And in this one, go a little bit into my own shadow, and we explore, I think, a, a fascinating little mandala of shadow material. So enjoy. What lurks in the shadow of the spiritual psyche? In particular, we might want to ask that question because a lot of people are trying to work on themselves. And what might the process of trying to work on ourselves leave in the shadow? What might it have to unco uncover or confront? Now, we've asked that question a little bit already. We're going to look at something specific and we also want to ask, in relation to this, what lurks in the shadow of the artistic psyche? And in this case in particular, the ar architectural psyche will be rather prominent. How does architecture, the built environment, what we refer to as the built environment, how does that express our ignorance and our shadow? Not only express, but reinforce. How do the arts in general express and reinforce our ignorance and our shadow? Now, it's not just a question for artists. The idea is that art and architecture can both express and perpetuate our insanity, or they could somehow liberate us from it. That's one of the reasons I work with artists in particular quite a bit, because if we want to evolve our culture, we have to evolve the art. And to do that, we have to evolve how art gets taught. Our artists, architects, engineers, and others who inevitably draw on creativity don't get a good education in love wisdom. So they don't have the training they need in order to help our culture become genuinely healthy and thriving. When we look for the shadow in things like art and architecture, we're looking at our own shadow, our collective shadow, and we're looking for ways that we could do a better job at healing ourselves and our world. As we've said many times in this series on the shadow, looking at some of these things can challenge us. And we have to get really realistic about it. To put it in a way that might sound crass or vulgar, but which we might need in order to shock ourselves awake. Can we look at our own shit? Today's contemplation marks our first use of explicit language. The subject matter is still the shadow and the arts and architecture, as we just mentioned, but we're going to look in a little bit of a different way, including some scatology. And so our main expletive today is shit, and it won't get worse than that. 
though for some people that might feel like a pretty crass word. I don't think I ever heard my mother use the word shit. My grandfather used the word a bit like a Texan. He never lived in Texas, but his use of scatology somehow struck me as Texan. I remember this time my cousin and I never laughed so hard, I don't think, as this time when we were kids and we were watching an American football game on television with our grandfather. And as he watched this decidedly clumsy play by the home team, he said in the most stoic manner, Shit! It was so perfect in its expression that for years my cousin and I would say it to each other just as he did. You had to have been there, of course, obviously, but the moment was incredible. And we were still little kids. We had rarely heard our grandfather swear, really. He was pretty good about keeping it clean for quite some time. And then I think once we got into our teenage years, it got a little looser. Now, years later, not that long ago, really, I I started writing a novel in which the main character is himself a writer. And he pens a rather clever first line for a story that you get to hear about inside the context of this novel. And the first line that this character writes goes like this. A scatologist and an eschatologist walk into a bar. Now, I love that line. It's not going to be up there with all happy families are alike um, or something by Jane Austen, you know, but it's, it's a nice line because it sounds like the opening of a joke. And the story that this character writes is a kind of cosmic joke story. He's involved in a cosmic joke story in a way. And in the story... The scatologist is an anthropologist who specializes in excrement and the ways that cultures deal with it. That's the formal study of scatology. You could be like a psychologist and look at the way people talk about it. How do people use scatological language? And this anthropologist is interested in that. But a lot of scatology means that you deal with fossilized excrement. And in this story, the anthropologist does deal with that, but deals with cultural things more generally. He's more of a cultural anthropologist. And the eschatologist is also an anthropologist. And she happens to specialize in the vision that various cultures have had of ultimate things and of possible endings for the world. So together they engage in a kind of archaeology of the soul. We could call it a psychic archaeology, and there are some strange things that happen as kind of a trippy story that this character is writing. And so this opening line brings together the highest and the lowest, the profane ends of things and the sacred ends of things, the scatology and the eschatology. In a slightly different way of bringing seemingly disparate things together, it seems important to recognize and reflect on the relationship between human, humus, humility, homo sapiens, and somewhat more poetically perhaps, om, the sacred syllable that holds such an important place in many philosophical and spiritual traditions of what we refer to as the East. These words all share a common root, might be a little more mysterious in the case of Om, since you can find a lot of disagreement on the meaning and the etymology or the origin of the word Om. But we can certainly hear Om in Homus 
and human, if we have an ear for poetic resonance, or maybe a heart for spiritual and philosophical resonance. In any case, it seems important to remember and revere the deep connection between humus, humility, human, and om. We could say that love wisdom, our philosophy of life in general, needs rootedness in humus, rootedness in the soil, and that philosophical, spiritual, psychological evolution, development, or maturation involves a certain degree of humiliation that gives rise to a gentle humility. That's in place of the sort of hyper-self-criticism and even self-loathing cultivated by so many people who are caught up in the Western mindset, what we call the Western mindset. Humility is not the same as that kind of self-loathing. Humus is also a potential test for our shadow, individually or collectively, because depending on how our psyche happens to express itself, the word humus could bring to mind the flush toilet. That may seem surprising, but the flush toilet stands out as a rather wonderful example of how our life gets cut off from the natural world how we can pretend to separate ourselves, live as if we're separate, and how nature becomes part of our own shadow. To put it bluntly, and again possibly crassly, but worth it to wake us up, we don't give a shit for nature. We withhold even this from nature. We take, 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 and we won't give anything back. If we ponder it, we might find it extraordinary. How clear a symbol of misunderstanding and how telling an expression of the difference between the way human beings think on the one hand and the way nature actually functions on the other. I'm lucky enough to have lived for more than a year now, in a place where I have to use a hole in the ground for a toilet. And because of the shadow elements at play, we might not notice the importance of being able to give something back to the earth when the dominant culture has us living so much as takers. It's a taking culture. And to be able to give something back, something so simple yet meaningful for the earth, it really could have quite an impact on us. When I lived as a philosopher in residence at a wild horse sanctuary, my days usually began by collecting the sacred offerings from my equine teachers so that we could compost them. When writing my doctoral dissertation, many of my days began that way as well, shoveling horse shit. It was wonderful to be around the horses and to offer them and the earth some physical labor. There's intellectual privilege that's part of human privilege. And it was wonderful to be able to help the horses do their job, which they would do perfectly well if humans didn't interfere. Horses know how to take care 
of the earth. Horses think a lot more the way nature works. They know how to take care of entire ecologies, while human ignorance, under the guise of human knowledge, knows how to break ecologies down. Human ignorance breaks down ecologies quite explicitly in the human activities of building and development, which is a funny thing. It means, as we've mentioned before, that the words we use have lost their meaning, and we should maybe change our terms until we have changed our practices. When human beings in the dominant culture speak of development, they mean degradation. When we speak of building, we usually mean invading and tearing down. That's what happens in practice. We develop an area, it means we degrade its ecologies often radically. And that makes architecture an art form that maintains the shadow and maintains, in general, the pattern of insanity of the dominant culture. Many architects have tried to challenge this in a deep way and have tried to help vision the culture forward. We could talk about a lot of them, but the architect Hundertwasser stands out right now, given our theme, and as we'll see. He helped pioneer modern eco-art and eco-literacy in architecture, and he perhaps gave birth to the modern notion of a green roof. He created veritable forests on and in his buildings. He said, grass and vegetation in the city should grow on all horizontal spaces. That is to say, wherever rain and snow falls, vegetation should grow on the roads and on the roofs, which sounds like a radical claim. But all of his buildings integrate rather astonishing levels of plant life, an architecture of veriditas, we might say. Veriditas is St. Hildegard's term, that combines the Latin word veritas, or truth, and the Latin word virtus or green. Veriditas is the divine spirit flowing in the living things of the world. It's sacred medicine, right here. St. Hildegard was something of an eco-philosopher herself, an eco-artist, an eco-sensual sage. And she might have appreciated some of Hundertwasser's ideas and practices. Now, if you like, after this, or you could pause now, you could do an internet search for something like Hundertwasser Living Roof, or similar kind of search phrase, and then you could click on the images to have a look. Now, in honor of Hundertwasser, you might look him up using Ecosia, which is the new search engine that donates 80% or more of its profits to reforestation. Not that we can necessarily solve the problems of the world this way, but it's uh, E is in Echo, C is in Charlie, O is in Oscar, S is in Sierra, I is in India, A is in Alpha, ecosia.org. You can use them as a search engine. And if you look up Hundertwasser and Living Roof, you'll see some of his designs have trees growing inside the buildings with branches coming out of windows or other deliberate openings. Now, I, I sort of got on this, I know, I'm mentioning toilets, and we will get to that, but first... Let's consider some things related to Hundertwasser, this architect, that begin to help us sense the shadow in architecture and that may in turn get us to thinking about the shadow in the arts in general and in our own lives. So we're looking at the collective psyche 
knowing that some of the things that we might detect in that shadow are also in us. And this, again, is a little bit in that platonic way of of trying to look outside ourselves to see the larger structures of the soul, because it's that idea of as within, so without, you know. Hundertwasser wrote a work referred to as his Mold Manifesto. That's uh, mold, like the stuff that grows uh, on, uh, on your yogurt uh, or your bread, not the molding that's in architecture, which you might think since he was interested in architecture. Some people actually have suggested that everything he did was a manifesto, so that we should see even his buildings, not really as ar- architecture, quote-unquote, but as multidimensional manifestos. In some sense, maybe our contemplations together verge into manifestos. And what does that mean? Well, it means not that we're merely making proclamations, but that we seek real change in the world. And we endeavor to align ourselves with wisdom, love, and beauty. So our contemplations, in a certain way, count as declarations of value. Declarations of common ground, common humus. In his Mold Manifesto, Hundertwasser wrote that painting and sculpture have become liberated in the sense that anyone at all can produce a painting or sculpture and put it on display. But he claims that architecture lacks this freedom and that causes a problem. Hundertwasser says that we should see a kind of fundamental freedom as a precondition for any real art form, but architecture doesn't have that because it requires a degree and a license. So you don't need a license to make a painting, but you need a license to build a building, call yourself an architect. Philosophically, Hundertwasser might be missing a deep point that the spiritual traditions would want us to recognize with that idea, you know, that The spiritual traditions want us to see that art should come from our soul and not from an encumbered ego, not filtered in any way through our encumbered ego. And that's why so many philosophers, going back at least to Socrates and Plato in the dominant culture, but one finds this everywhere, that philosophers and sages have expressed a lot of care about how people make art. And that's what we were touching on, too, that philosophers have recognized that you can change the whole culture if you can change the way art Manifest, which requires changing how artists get educated and having that education be more rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty, then you could really have a positive impact on the whole world. Now, obviously, Hundertwasser is right that we don't require a formal degree here, but a healthy culture should put everyone in touch with the true sources and purposes of creativity, which are not a human possession. And the dominant culture fails to do that. Requiring a degree or a license will do nothing to help the situation. So, again, he's, he's right in that sense. So we could respectfully suggest that Hundertwasser was trying to get at a kind of indigenous notion that in a healthy culture, anyone at all should be empowered to know how to build a dwelling. That every, everybody should kind of have a basic sense of how to do that. Maybe we all do it together as part of how we take care of each other. We would put up each other's dwellings and help do repairs and so on. And most of us wouldn't know where to begin if we had to build our own stable dwelling, not just some lean-to with a tarp and some sticks that we have 
to get through the night because we're lost in the woods, but really how to thrive in the woods and how to have a dwelling that we could be in for some time if we didn't want to be nomads. Hundertwasser also made it clear that, as he put it, I'm quoting here, present-day planned architecture cannot be considered art at all. That's what he said. That's a powerful statement. And then he rubbed it, on, rubbed it in by saying, all that has been achieved are detached and pitiable compromises by men of bad conscience who work with straight-edged rulers. <laughs> he didn't like straight-edged rulers, as we'll see. Maybe we'll consider some other passages from him. He's got some things to say about overly straight edges. So Hundertwasser recognized that people would have to learn how to build in order for architecture to become liberated. And he recognized that that could be problematic. There was going to be some kind of learning curve there. And he went so far as to acknowledge that a building built by amateurs might, in fact, collapse. It could happen. But in maybe a kind of cheeky maneuver, he said, well, you know, it'll creak beforehand, so people will be able to escape. They'll hear the building creaking. And then if a collapse does happen to you, or you hear about a collapse happening to somebody else, you'll get really careful really quick. You'll learn. That learning curve will be sharp. And people will leap right up that curve if they can, and will in general become far better thinkers. We'll think far more critically and creatively about our own homes. Hundertwasser claimed that while modern functional architecture seems to have the intention to be constructed for the benefit of human beings, in practice, architecture oppresses the human soul. That might seem melodramatic, but we've talked about this issue a lot, that we, we can have one intention, and then when we look at our, our actual practice of, of life, we say, these are my values, these are my intentions, and then we look at our actual practice, we find very different values being realized. And sometimes that does come from the shadow. We have to wonder what the architect's shadow or the collective shadow is up to, that it doesn't intend our well-being, but somehow intends the oppression of the human soul and the degradation of the human soul and the soul of the world. A degradation of ecologies means a degradation of human beings. And we have good philosophical and cultural evidence, as well as dominant culture scientific evidence, that the built environment may oppress the soul. And again, it's come up in other contemplations, in blog posts at wisdomloveandbeauty.org, and it seems worth reviewing just a little. As far as the science goes, so a wonderful study by Long et al., 2014, and they found, quote, students who were more connected with nature, preferred innovative and holistic cognitive styles. That's a wonderful finding. Now, the researchers noted that these data are, quote, the first to establish the link between connectedness with nature and cognitive styles, end quote. That's marvelous. We can begin to sense that connectedness to nature may somehow relate to our being more innovative and holistic thinkers. It seems essential to refer to this as a style of consciousness 
Now, technically, as we just heard in that little quote, the researchers are speaking of a cognitive style, but that itself betrays a lack of holistic thinking, which their study seeks to explore. So they're thinking, well, it's just a cognitive style. No, it's a holistic, so that means the whole consciousness is off. It's a style of consciousness. Conquest consciousness is one style of consciousness, and we can ask about its level of skill and effectiveness. Evaluating it carefully so as to include all the negative side effects. You have to look at everything. Is a building pretty? Okay, but how do the people think when they're in it? And how, what are the consequences to the ecologies that those people depend on when you built that building? The built environment of the dominant culture in general contrasts sharply with the built environment of indigenous or more spiritually and ecologically attuned cultures. We're not even sure we should call them a built environment in that case. And those kinds of cultures may exhibit a lot more rootedness in wisdom, love, and beauty, which goes all together with the way they build. The way we do things, remember, is philosophy. So our philosophy is in our buildings because there's a way we think it should be done. A way of relating the building to the human beings who live in it, a way of relating the building to the ecologies. And how do we normally do it? We put a dead box someplace and then we stick a life support system in. That's a funny way of thinking about it. And we're talking about feedback loops. In other words, that's an ecology of mind, is a circuit, a, a larger feedback loop. A culture begins to get ignorant. Its architecture then gets ignorant, and then the architecture feeds back into the thought patterns of the culture. So we see pattern affecting pattern. It's a feedback. If our architecture isn't rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty, then the buildings, we go into them, and what do you know? We get what the scientists are finding, that we're more cut off from nature, and we're more cut off from wisdom, love, and beauty, more cut off from holistic and innovative thinking. And we should also consider the work of Zelensky et al. 2015 study, they found that connecting with nature facilitates cooperative, pro-social, and environmentally sustainable behaviors. And this is precisely in contrast to behavior influenced by the built environment. That's a wonderful finding. And we could put those findings in turn in relation with a meta-analysis that included over 2,400 individuals. It was conducted by Shutton Moloff, 2018. I don't know, Malouf? How do you say your name, researcher? Shoot and Maloff? Now, they found a significant relationship between mindfulness and connectedness with nature. That's, in fact, the name of the meta-analysis, Mindfulness and Connectedness to Nature. And you can find that in uh, 2018 issue of Personality and Individual Differences. Now, all of this has to do with our initial recognition and reverence for those words that go together, human, humus, humility, homo sapiens, and Om. The built environment cuts us off from humus, from soil and soul, 
It creates a feedback loop of human privilege and conquest consciousness. Those two go together. The built environment expresses and perpetuates a cut-off existence. Cut off from a more immediate and intimate sense of the sacredness of the world and the ecologies of mind that could empower our thinking. The built environment expresses and exacerbates a duality between mind and nature, further obscuring the nature of mind itself. How, then, could we ever think at our very best in such false ecologies? Now, these are the ecologies of most classrooms, offices, courtrooms, tech firms. It's where we do our thinking. And sometimes the, the buildings might be very beautiful, but the question is whether or not they really do attune us and get us out of that gap between the way human beings think on the one hand and the way nature actually functions. The built environment, or this kind of ignorantly produced, human-centric, human-privileged ecology, seems to go with a style of consciousness that makes us less cooperative, less mindful, less ecologically sustainable, less intimate with real ecologies, less responsive to wonder and sacredness, less capable of holistic and innovative thinking. On the other hand, the style of consciousness that might arise from greater rootedness in nature and in wisdom, love, and beauty seems more innovative, more holistic, more cooperative, more sustainable, more present and aware, more in touch with wonder and sacredness more available for love and liberation into larger ecologies of mind. A group of humans talking inside a building may enact a larger ecology of mind than any single one of them on their own inside that same building, but the whole group may remain cut off from nature, out of touch with the soil, and thus with their fuller soul, out of touch with wind, water, and fire, out of touch with countless sentient beings who languish in the human shadow. And so the ecologies of mind can remain stuck in the human. Not just stuck in the human, but stuck in conquest consciousness. It has a style of consciousness and a style of thought. Now, as we reflect on things like that, we might arrive at a similar diagnosis to the one that Hundertwasser proposed. He said, architecture involves the oppression of the soul, which goes together with oppression of sentient beings, both human and non-human. That's in the shadow, of course, because consciously the architect may not intend to oppress us, may intend the opposite. It's an unconscious directive. It has to do with shadow elements. We're not really aware of how this is happening. If you never had the kind of wild mind or a fully awakened mind, you don't know what you're missing. It's a very different thing to compare, say, a horse who was born domesticated, 
and was really broken down by human beings, and to compare that with a wild Mustang. It's two very different beings. To compare some of the dogs you find in the SPCA and the wolves who used to live here on Turtle Island, some of the ones who still live here have that incredible intelligence and wildness, just an aliveness and an empowered quality that many human beings lack, and we self-domesticated, and then conquest consciousness really got us off on a very, very dangerous track. And the question is, how much did it degrade us? Even if we were to compare somebody like Buddha or Socrates or Christ or Confucius, what their consciousness might have been like, which seems to be a mind that got closer to wildness. It's a way to understand the mystics and the spiritual traditions as trying to restore the wildness of our mind even within the domains of what we call civilization. And we're just trying to reflect on the possibilities or the ways in which architecture and perhaps much of our other creative work in the dominant culture arises from and perpetuates the denuding of the human soul and the soul of the world. Hundertwasser goes on in his Mold Manifesto to write that people living in apartments should have the freedom to lean out their windows and do whatever they want to the exterior of their buildings. As far as their arms could reach, they should be able to paint it. If you wanted to paint something on the wall, he thinks you should be able to do it. Now, inside your place, if you want to you know, make a big sculpture in the middle of the floor and have all this clay in your house, you should be able to do it. You should be able to paint, carve up the walls, anything, all sorts of things that your lease is just never going to let you do. He thought, well, that's criminal. And he didn't just write about these things. As we noted, he created multidimensional manifestos in the form of buildings. For instance, he created an apartment building called Hundertwasser House, which you can look up that if uh, on Ecosia again. He didn't receive any payment for it. He claimed that he wasn't really an architect. We might put that in quotes. And he even said that he wasn't particularly good. He said, it's just that everybody else is so bad and I, di I didn't want something even uglier going up in place of what I sense we need in order to move forward. So he felt that he, he kind of had to offer this design. And you can look it up. And you'll see that Hundertwasser House has trees living in the buildings as co-inhabitants. And they have their own windows even. And the humans and the trees can decorate their windows however they like. The building includes non-linearity, has undulating walls and floors. Now, interestingly, the tenants of Hundertwasser House reportedly have better overall health and their children do better at school compared to other apartment dwellers. It's a piece, I think it was in the New York Times, mentioned this. I don't have the hard data. It's at least possible, given the other research that we've mentioned. Nevertheless, we know that it's possible for us to think better if we have better relationship with living ecologies and practices for liberating ourselves into larger ecologies of mind. Thinking less like the way human beings think in their habitual ignorance and more like the way nature works.
Hundertwasser's Mold Manifesto says the following, quote, The time has come for people to rebel against their confinement in cubicle constructions like chickens or rabbits in cages, a confinement which is alien to human nature. Such a cage or utility construction is a building alien to the nature of all three groups of people having to do with that building. And what's he talking about? What are these three groups? The three groups are the architects, the builders, and the inhabitants. Hundertwasser said the architect doesn't really have a vitalizing relationship with the building because, first of all, they have bad ideas, but also they don't know who's going to move into an apartment building that they design. And then you have the bricklayers and the carpenters. They come along. They don't have a vitalizing relationship with the building either because they can only follow the plan. And they can't make changes based on their own moral or aesthetic judgment. And then finally, the tenants, and this is, again, true most particularly for apartment buildings. People might have an architect design their own building. The architect might sit with them. and Most people can't afford that. But the tenants in, in many buildings haven't participated at all in their dwelling. They didn't lay a single brick or design a single element they get moved in, Hundred Wasser feels like they're livestock, and their lease tells them that they can do very little to make any changes, or that if they make any changes, they're somehow financially responsible for putting it back, or many times you just can't do anything significant to a place. And Hundred Wasser wanted to encourage us to uh, practice a kind of holy trinity, and in that manifesto he specifically compares the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as a trinity with architect, builders, and tenants. And he says we need to regain our creativity and apparently our soul, our sense of sacredness. So Hundertwasser confronts, among other things, a fierce element in the shadow of the dominant culture in its art and architecture as well as elsewhere, and that is the ego of the artist, which is no different than the ego of the CEO or the politician. But for some of us, it's easier to look at the artist, especially if, if you run a business, you don't want to hear about the ego of the CEO being a problem. But we could say, oh, yes, those egotistical artists. And we might say, well, but the ego of the artist isn't in the shadow, is it? Because don't we know that they're egotistical and don't they know it? Well, in fact, it still is in the shadow because, especially collectively, we don't admit that egocentrism in art in general, has serious consequences. It's as if the art could be produced independently of an egocentrically oriented culture. But the idea is that somehow or other, that's, it's always going to carry consequences, and we're not necessarily willing to look at those. Because to look at the consequences of egocentrism per se means to look at the whole problem everywhere. It's in each of us. A more ecologically and spiritually skillful creative process decenters the ego. And a decentered ego inevitably leads to very different kinds of results, especially over time. And so we really could see that kind of art as revolutionary in the authentic sense. It's based out of a different center. It's like that Copernican revolution. 
We, we treat ourselves as the center, but really we need the ego to be orbiting about something else and not trying to act like it could be the center. Now, any serious practice of decentering the ego must abide by spiritual and ecological principles, and that means it has to become a spiritual and ecological path. We don't seem to have any ethical alternative to that. It seems to be the best way of rooting our path in life, our path in art, whatever it might be, rooting that in ethics and bringing together ethics, aesthetics, epistemology, ontology, politics, economics, metaphysics, all the rest, everything together in a holistic vision. And we could say all those things together ethics, aesthetics, epistemology, politics, economics, all that together counts as ecology in the fullest sense. It means the non-duality of nature and culture right now. Because in our right now, nature mostly stands in the shadow of the dominant culture. As Freud put it so well, in language that should shock and sadness in its truth, the way it expresses the truth of the dominant culture, Freud said, quote, the principal task of civilization, its actual reason for being, is to defend us against nature. The raison d'etre of civilization is to defend us against nature. What an astonishing thing for him to say. And you can find that in a book published as Future of an Illusion. And that line shows the conflict inherent in the dominant culture. Freud portrays civilization as a state of war with the necessities of life. And thus he puts us at war with ourselves. That's what he's describing. There's no way really of getting around that. And as sophisticated civilized people, we don't have time to listen, to learn, to feel, to sense, to attune with nature. We'd rather just get rid of it. You got a problem with the coyote or the wolf? Kill it. That's our response to things. That's what we did with horses, too. People went around killing horses. Got a problem with a horse? Get it under control. Don't stop everything you're doing and ask, well, what kind of person am I? Don't stop and listen deeply and throw away your agenda we say, well, I'm going to listen, but I'm still going to put the saddle on. <laughs> it's a, a funny way. We still want to, we're going to have our agenda. Now we're just going to spiritualize it. No, I listen to the horse. I'm a horse whisperer, which means I will just a little bit more gently make the horse do everything I wanted to make the horse do to begin with. Seems nicer than beating the horse, but ultimately it's still about human privilege. And there we can maybe feel more comfortable. We'll be back up and talk about arts again. Artists seeking to enhance their eco-sensual awareness might think about these things. You know, the egocentric mind, we're saying, in general, is a mind of conflict and incoherence. That's what Freud was pointing at. This war between us and nature. But in general, ego, the presence of egocentrism, means there's conflict. A conflict, for instance, between what we really are, and what the ego wants to think we are. Good or bad, there's conflict and incoherence. That's why we think we're intending one thing, we get another result. 
And the shadow contains the items of conflict the ego wants to just keep repressed. We don't want to know about them at all. They want them to be unconscious. And that's why we're examining the shadow of art, including architecture, to see what it might be repressing. And we, we're only actually even asking mainly about one thing, ultimately. We're, we're hinting at different things that might be repressed in general nature. But because of the, the, the charged feel to some of the things that are in the shadow, we're, we're looking at the kind of uncomfortable parts of nature, like mold and excrement. And any artists, again, who are seeking, or any human beings who want to enhance their ecosensual awareness, become more holistic and innovative thinkers, if that's what you're looking for, and you want to be more skillful and realistic, which means more ethical, more graceful, more ecologically realistic, we have to look at some of these concerns. And when we're looking at the artist, it's no different. We can talk about the art of the doer. Did the doer, did a doer make the painting? Well, usually, sometimes the artist gets in a flow state and they really feel like it's all coming out. And to a degree, they might be touching into something that approaches non-doing. But a flow state is not non-doing. We have to be, get really clear about that. A lot of people think it is. Not if we read the philosophers who talk about non-doing. There's more to it. Similarly, we have art of personal vision or personal expression, and that's we use the same kind of language in business. Talk about you know the vision of the business, the entrepreneur's vision. But these are all just habits of the dominant culture, and we're trying to look at the ignorance of it. It's uncomfortable. It can be a little scary. And it can be scary or intimidating to ask, really, how could we do things in a new way? Not just another innovation of the pattern of insanity itself. Not something merely novel or clever or pretty or ingenious or disruptive in art, in culture in general, including in business, but really a thoroughly new art and a thoroughly new, revitalized, rejuvenated culture. And thoroughly new would mean that we finally attune ourselves with the way nature functions and give up the habits by means of which human beings tend to think, especially in the dominant culture. We finally practice and realize the nature of our mind and the mind of nature finally liberate ourselves into larger ecologies of mind that include the oppressed, human and non-human, in a manner consonant with mutual nourishment, mutual illumination, mutual care and reverence, and mutual liberation. See, there we're talking about the essence of freedom. Not our ideas about freedom, the essence of freedom, the essence of art and creativity, the essence of mind and nature. Now we got to thinking about all those things because of Hundertwasser's notion of the Holy Trinity, uniting architects, builders, and the people living in the dwelling. And just even at that example, we might wonder how he actually put it into practice. How did he put the ideal of the Holy Trinity into practice? 
the owner of the only Hundertwasser creation on Turtle Island gives us a little bit of insight into that. A fellow named Carl Dumani, he owns a winery, the Quixote Winery, and he managed to get Hundertwasser to collaborate with him to build the winery. It's not far north of where I've been living for quite some time. Now. I've been living on the, in Northern California for a few years now. And that winery has lingered on my list of places I'd like to go, if only I can find a way to actually make the fossil fuel use sensible. Given where I'm at now, we'd be talking about driving almost five hours round trip. Uh, to drive five hours round trip in order to drink wine and look at a building doesn't make sense. But it's still worth contemplating the architecture, even from a distance, and you can find images of the building. In an interview for a piece on Hunter Vosser that appeared in the New York Times, uh, Dumani r related his impression of Hunter Vosser's practice. And this is what he said. He said, the genius of the guy is he brings the craftsman into the process. He always asks, what would you do here? And they'd be proud of their choices. On weekends, the carpenters, tile guys, and plasterers working on the job, they'd be here with their wives or girlfriends showing them what they are working on. So Hundred Foster really did try to put some of this into practice. He has these fanciful forms and shapes and motifs in his work, and he involved the builders and the tenants in the construction. And so he's showing us the, the possibilities that might open up when we release our work into a larger ecology of mind. It not only allows for more creative potential, but it aligns that creative potential with wisdom, love, and beauty. Hundertwasser could have been far more ecologically sophisticated than he was. We're not trying to suggest that he was perfect, but he took some distinctive steps in a good direction that seemed worthy of our respect and consideration. And we could say that in a kind of default and often unconscious way, human beings treat art like a personal possession of humans or humanity. But if we were to carry our spiral around one more circuit, we could say it again, human, humus, humility, homo sapiens, and om. Human art belongs to the earth, to the humus, to the community of life, to sacredness, to the whole cosmos. In humility, we can sense our creative work and any work we do in life as sacred activity in service to all sentient beings, upon whose own creativity our human lives wholly depend. You see, our creative work serves them because their creative activity in the world makes our life possible. Birds make the world beautiful, and their art, their cosmetics, adornments, and architecture, their songs and dances, their auguries and countless synchronicities, all their sacred art makes our life possible. What song do we sing back to them? What do we do to open the leaves of the trees to breathing, 
to open the book of a new day to learning, to open the sky of spaciousness for them. Sentient beings gift us to life. They gift us our lives in song and color, in taste and texture. They wonder our senses, and love wisdom begins in wonder. They are the beginning of our philosophy of life, the, be the beginning and the path itself and its fruition. We find our spiritual roots in them as well as our creative intelligence. Do we ask them about their vision of the world? Do we empower them to co-create the world with us? Or do we do what we want and expect them to accept the consequences? Consequences we ourselves rarely think deeply enough to foresee. We march along to the drumbeat of manipulation and control. Even though we cannot control life, cannot control nature in her basic wildness, which is our basic nature too. Hundred Vosser calls out our habits of manipulation and control in many ways, including a passage about our use of straight lines. Suggested we might be able to come back to this. He's got this passage where he writes the following quote. Also criminal is the use of ruler and T-square in architecture, which, as can be easily proved, have become instruments of the breakdown of the architectural trinity. Just carrying a ruler with you in your pocket should be forbidden, at least on a moral basis. The ruler is the symbol of the new illiteracy. The ruler is the symptom of the new disease, disintegration of our civilization. Today we live in a chaos of straight lines, in a jungle of straight lines. If you do not believe this, take the trouble to count the straight lines which surround you. Then you will understand, for you will never finish counting. On one razor blade, I counted 546 straight lines. By imagining linear connections to another razor blade of the same manufacturing process, which surely looks exactly the same, this yields 1,090 straight lines. And adding on the packaging, the result is about 3,000 straight lines from the same blade. Not all that long ago, possession of the straight line was a privilege of royalty, the wealthy and the clever. Today, every idiot carries millions of straight lines around in his pants' pockets. Any modern architecture in which the straight line or the geometric circle have been employed for only a second, and were it only in spirit, must be rejected. Not to mention the design, drawing board, and model-building work, which has become not only pathologically sterile, but absurd. The straight line is godless and immoral. The straight line is not a creative line, it is a duplicating line, an imitating line. In it, God and the human spirit are less at home than the comfort-craving, brainless, intoxicated, and unformed masses. Now, 
Now this funny passage <laughs> brings to mind some lyrics that I wrote for the same novel I mentioned before. Now these uh, lyrics are kind of a little philosophical in nature, and there is a you. The you in these lyrics is the beloved. The way Rumi wrote about the beloved, for philosophers in the lineage of the Greeks, the beloved, of course, is Sophia. It goes like this. I keep a crude watch on this soul of mine. I keep my heart well guarded all the time. I leave these ends out so they catch and bind. When you're not mine, I draw the line. When I'm alone and don't know what to do, I get abstract instead of loving you. I take a metaphor as a stubborn truth. When you're not mine, I cut the line. When I'm in darkness thinking that it's light. When I'm wrong but it feels like I am right. When I make suffering a source of my delight. When you're not mine, I push the line. You have a way to keep me by your side, even though I try to run and hide. If I could stand still, I might turn the tide. Until you're mine, I crawl the line. A wise man told me I could turn it all. He said I'd leap and you would catch my fall. Just go straight, he said, and stop this desperate crawl. To make you mine, I'll drop the line. Now the rhyming there creates a need for poetic irony. Obviously, to anyone in the mystical traditions of the dominant culture even, we know that one can never make the beloved mine. But we use that leitmotif in the poetry of the dominant culture sometimes. But nothing belongs to us as a personal possession. Everything belongs to everything. Everything belongs to the beloved, to the divine. We all belong to each other. Hundertwasser wanted architecture to try and acknowledge that, to acknowledge impermanence and interwovenness, and he wrote this little passage. He said, When rust sets in on a razor blade, when a wall starts to get moldy, that's where we get the mold manifesto, right? When moss grows in a corner of a room, rounding its geometric angles, we should be glad. Because together with the microbes and fungi, life is moving into the house, and through this process, we can more consciously become witnesses of architectural changes from which we have much to learn. Now, obviously, I don't want to live in a moldy house any more than you do, but you can get the spirit of this. He's just pointing to our inability to accept impermanence and to live with nature in a good way. We're always trying to block nature out, and the buildings function to cut us off from living processes, including impermanence. Now, in an addendum to the Mold Manifesto, Andred Wasser wrote this passage. He wrote... 
Today's architecture is criminally sterile. For unfortunately, all building activity ceases at the very moment when human beings take up quarters. But normally, building activity should not begin until people move in. We are outrageously robbed of our humanity by defiling dictates and criminally forced not to make any changes or additions to facades, the layout or interiors, either in color, structure, or masonry. Even tenant-owned dwellings can be subject to censorship. See building inspection regulations and lease statutes, for instance. The characteristic thing about prisons, cages, or pens is the prefabricated a priori structure, the definitive termination of building activity prior to the prisoners or animals moving into a structure which is innately incompatible to them, coupled with the categorical restriction that the inmate may change nothing in this, their housing, which has been imposed on them. So again, this might apply a lot more to renters. We have a lot of renters in the U.S. And of course, there's some sense in which the high level of home ownership here, compared to what Hundred Vosser might have been used to in Europe, could relate to a maneuver on the part of banks, first of all, to make money off of mortgages, but also to make workers less inclined to go on strike. Uh, there's some interesting research on that. You know, if you have a mortgage to pay, then you're less likely to say, yeah, I'll go on strike because you don't want to lose the wages because you could lose your house and everything that you've put into it. But the principles are still applicable. And certainly this idea that we have all these building codes, some of which are absolutely crazy, the idea that the best wisdom in a building code could be to try to keep neighborhoods and people safe, especially safe from things they don't know much about. But that's part of the problem. We don't know what it's like to live in a place. If you knew what the place was like and you had some sense of how to build a dwelling for yourself, we wouldn't need to have so many codes, many of which become ridiculous and antithetical to humanity because they're so antithetical to ecologies in general too and cut us off from them. Now, in that same essay that we just quoted from, Hundertwasser mentions a few buildings or architects he finds much healthier. And he includes this a short list, and he says it's, you know, this is an embarrassing, embarrassingly short list. He includes the work of Gaudí in Barcelona. He's worth looking up if you, if you haven't seen his work. The Watts Tower in Los Angeles, he mentions. He mentions the ideal palace of the postman named uh, Ferdinand Cheval. If you haven't heard of that one, you might want to look it up. It's an incredible building, handmade by a postman, based on a dream he had. So he was not a, an architect. I think that probably thrilled Hundred Wasser in particular. The person had no training, let alone license in architecture. It took him 33 years. He didn't start until he was 43. So you late bloomers out there, don't worry. This is a, a really wonderful building to see. Hundred Wasser also includes indigenous buildings on that list an illegal house building in the U.S. He mentions that. And the houseboats in Sausalito, California. If you've ever been up in the Bay Area, it was on one of those boats that Otis Redding composed the song Sitting on the Dock of the Bay. So 
there you had a, a boat, uh, a, a building very much in touch with ecological reality because it's on the water and it's moving with the water. And I think maybe Hundertwasser liked that. Of course, he named him, he changed his own name, and he called himself Hundertwasser's Hundred Waters. So, well, a nice name. And in a later addendum to that essay, he wrote the following line. He said, The architect's only function should be that of a technical advisor, i.e. answering questions regarding material stabilities, etc. So they shouldn't be the kind of egocentric designer, but they should be a technical advisor. Unless they want to build something, I guess, you know, why not? If you're an architect, you want to build your own. That's why uh, Frank Lloyd writes uh, some of his the places that he built for himself, I think Taliesin East and West are on the UNESCO World Heritage Site list for Turtle Island. If you look at Turtle Island, Frank Lloyd Wright's got a strong presence on, I think there are 24 maybe UNESCO uh, World Heritage Sites on Turtle Island. I'm not 100% sure. But Frank Lloyd Wright's got several listing there. He was a very special architect. And Falling Water was, for me, a pilgrimage site. And it's marvelous, the integration of elements that you can experience there. It's a building really built on the water. And maybe Hundertwasser could have made an exception, even though there are some straight lines. He did mention Art Nouveau architects. He didn't mention Wright in particular in that essay. And I don't know, I didn't look to see if he had ever mentioned Frank Lloyd Wright. Now, one contemporary architect working kind of in the spirit of Hundertwasser is Mike Reynolds, you might have heard of Reynolds. He pioneered what he calls earthship biotexture. And the idea of this form of architecture is that it uses upcycled, recycled, and local materials as far as possible. Famously, there's a lot of uh, used tires. We have millions of tires. If you look up Edward Bertinsky and the Oxford Tire Pile, you see massive piles of tires just in California. And I think I came across a statistic that just even in the UK, they burn 40 million tires a year. I'm not sure whether or not it's it's uh, healthy to live in a building where the walls are made out of used tires. Maybe if they were insulated or something. I, I don't know if there are any problems with that, but it is it does seem good to upcycle some of the materials that he uses. And, um, and Earthship, the idea of it is it can be completely off-grid. And it holds the ideal, really, of serving as a total functioning ecosystem. And that contrasts sharply, of course, with dominant culture, culture architecture, which, as we already mentioned, you, you get, take a dead box, you stick it wherever you want it to be, and then you find a way to put it on artificial life support system. And that not only cuts us off from ecological and spiritual realities in some cases. I mean, you might have a spiritual practice in your house that's cut off and maybe you'll be enlightened. You know, remember the gold standard in the Buddhist tradition was to do what Siddhartha did, which was go sit in the woods, be in the wild, you know, swim across a river, go into the woods, find a tree and stay there. And that was the gold standard for years. And Jesus went in the desert. You can go on and on. People go into wild places. Nevertheless, sure, you could become enlightened in an apartment building in New York. But in some of these cases, you know, the, our living dwellings, uh, they degrade the world and they create real dangers. You know, we, we've seen, like if we have wild storms and it shuts the power grid down and people can freeze to death or they might not be able to get clean water and they might not be able to get 
food. They might not have any way to cook food. And an ideal earthship would have food growing inside and outside of it that you'd have access to. And it would have a comfortable temperature year-round. And an ideal earthship even finds a way to make the sewage from the house usable as compost. Now, these are the ideals. Like Hunter Foster, Reynolds, maybe he was also a manifesto builder. Who knows? He experimented a lot, and he needed to experiment, of course, but it seems to have created some problems for him. So the experimental nature of it and the fact that he was kind of on his own, uh, he did some very, very important work, and he's probably still worth looking at, but it is also worth looking beyond because maybe the leading edge of eco-literate architecture has far surpassed the Earthship brand. That's quite possible. So don't uh, take it uncritically, but it gives a lot of food for thought anyway. And that mention of sewage, that's really what I wanted to get to, because uh, that brings us back to Hundred Vosser's vision, um, or one of his manifestos and his basic vision, I should say. One of his uh, texts has gotten the nickname of the Holy Shit Manifesto. And I'd like to read an, an excerpt from this. And I'll let you know when we come to the end. I'm going to go quite a few lines on this. We'll see. He writes, Every time we use the flush toilet, we think it is a hygienic accomplishment. But in fact, we violate cosmic law. Because in truth, it is an immoral act, a wicked act of death. It is as if we draw a dead line. When we use the toilet, we lock ourselves in and flush our shit away. Why are we ashamed? What are we afraid of? If we do not treasure our shit, and if we do not transform it into hummus in honor of God and the world, we lose our right to be present on this earth. In the name of obsolete and wrong sanitary laws, we lose our cosmic substance, we murder and destroy our future life. Dirt is life. Sterile cleanliness is death. You shall not kill, but we sterilize all life with poison and a layer of concrete. This is murder. We pray before we eat and say grace afterwards, but we do not pray when we shit. We thank God for our daily bread, which comes out of the earth. But we do not pray so that our shit becomes earth again. Waste is beautiful. To divide the different types of waste and to reintegrate them into the cycle is a happy occupation full of joy. We have the privilege to be witnesses of how, by our own wisdom, our own waste, our own shit turns back into humus. It is like a harvest which is ripening, like a tree which grows at home as if it was our own son. Homo humus humanitas. Three words, the same origin, the same destiny. That's the passage. He could have added humility, as we did, and maybe even Om. But thinking already about the resonance in those words, uh, 
Homo sapiens, humus, and human. I was really happy to read this manifesto, which is irreverent, but says some very wonderful things and philosophically appropriate things, things we really need to look at. And maybe to show that Handelwasser still remain willing to try and work within our current structures. And maybe we have far less, if any, luxury there at this point. Handelwasser's final project was, however ironically, a public toilet. And he built this toilet in uh, Aotearoa, New Zealand. He visited Aotearoa and fell in love with the place. He bought a farm, obtained citizenship, lived out the rest of his life and was buried there under a tree. You can look up that toilet, that public toilet. Despite his concession to our ignorance in making this toilet, Handelwasser nevertheless challenges our dualism around the sacred and the profane, the moral and the not moral. And he straightforwardly asks us to inquire into the fear anxiety, and shame that keeps those dualities in place. And when you're talking about fear and shame, you're in shadow territory. It's often why things end up in the shadow. That has that line, drawing a dead line. Doesn't that sound familiar? We talked about his hatred of the straight line, the dead line. And we might be reminded here of a few other figures. This passage brings to mind St. Hildegard again. She wrote something wonderful. She wrote, Do not mock anything God has created. All creation is simple, plain, and good. And God is present throughout his creation. Why do you ever consider things beneath your notice? God's justice is to be found in every detail of what he has made. The human race alone is capable of injustice Human beings alone are capable of disobeying God's laws because they try to be wiser than God. That's what happens sometimes in our egocentrism. We think we're cleverer than nature. You can get a difference between the way nature functions and the way human beings think only if you forget the kinds of things that Hildegard is trying to remind us of here. This is a Christian saint. This is consonant with many philosophies around the world. This is a common ground of wisdom. There are indigenous thinkers who would agree, Buddhist, Taoist, Confucian sages who would say, yes, that, there's something in that. That's right. I, I believe that. Christian or not. And St. Hildegard also wrote something else. She wrote, God loans all of creation to humankind for our use, the high, the low, everything. If we misuse this privilege... God's justice gives creation permission to offer humankind a reminder. It seems we're getting a reminder. It's not a pleasant one. Two other figures come to mind in relationship to Hundred Vosser's Holy Shit Manifesto. And they are Paracelsus and Zhuangzi. Paracelsus was the famous alchemist. And he reportedly began his teaching appointment at the University of Basel in Switzerland by placing a pot of human excrement on the table and saying to the students gathered there, this is what the work is about. This is life. This is God. 
Now, the philosophers uh, who we call alchemists, they refer to themselves as sons of Sophia. They, they were philosophers. And Jung was fascinated with them and with their exploration of the psyche, including the shadow, and how they did it symbolically, how they worked with their shadow symbolically. And then we have Zhuangzi, Zhuangzi, the great Taoist sage, a world philosopher. He gives us this story. He writes, Master Dunquo asked Zhuangzi, he refers to himself sometimes, he's a character in his own work of philosophy sometimes, and Zhuangzi writes, Master Dunquo asked Zhuangzi, this thing called the way, the Tao, where does it exist? So he's, he's asking him, where is, it would be like saying, this thing you call God, where is it? But it's the Tao, the Tao is the whole Mystery, the thing that's beyond all our words and concepts. That's the, the nature of reality itself, that which makes all things possible. So Master Dunquo asked Zhuangzi, this thing called the way, the Tao, where does it exist? Zhuangzi said, there's no place it doesn't exist. Come, said Master Dunquo, you must be more specific than that. Zhuangzi said, it's in the ant. As low a thing as that? It's in the panic grass, but that's lower still. It's in the tiles and shards. How can it be so low? It's in the piss and shit. Master Dunquo made no reply. It's a wonderful passage. There again, bringing together the sacred and the profane in non-duality. Hundertwasser would have loved that passage. But there's still further to go, because I often point out that I don't know of any dominant culture philosopher who wrote philosophical guidance for going to the toilet. But you find that kind of thing taken seriously in the Buddhist traditions, and another world-level sage, you know, global world philosopher named Dogen, who's a great sage of Japan, he wrote guidance about going to the toilet, along with guidance on cleaning our teeth, cooking meals, eating food. Dogen read Zhuangzi, it seems clear, and sometimes he seems to disagree with Zhuangzi, but he certainly would have agreed with that line, it's in the piss and shit. He might not have put it that way. But Dogen once appeared before his students and he said, mind is fences, walls, tiles, and pebbles, and Buddha is a glob of mud or a clump of soil. That's, that's good. And there too it would be like saying holiness is a glob of mud or a clump of soil. Sacredness, the awakened soul, its true nature. Now finding that mind, the mind that Dogen's talking about, finding that mind doesn't necessarily demand going up on a mountain. But it does demand a rupture, a radical break with the pattern of insanity of the dominant culture. We can't get to what Dogen or Zhuangzi or Hildegard were talking about if we stay caught in the pattern of insanity. We might see all kinds of very crucial and important things, but we won't get all the way there. We have to create this rupture. And that can begin as simply as how we relate to our own shit including all the shadow material of our psyche, both collective and individual. So in other words, the literal shit 
and the figurative, the psychic, metaphorical shit. And sometimes they're overlapping, precisely. Dogen wrote a teaching on cleansing as well as a teaching on washing the face. And I really think that's the kind of sage worth listening to, one who talks how we clean up. How do we keep things clean? What is dirt? What is cleanliness? What does it mean to do this apparently mundane activity, which we're often mindless about? We often do in a perfunctory or hurried way. Often it involves shadow elements. Dogen's teaching on cleansing includes a detailed account of using the latrine. There's just a lot of details. It's how do you carry the hand towel, and how do you arrange it, and how do you bow to other people? What if you pass someone when you're going to the toilet? How do you greet them? It's kind of amazing, really. It's worth reading, although Dogen's not easy to read, especially without guidance. It would be a good idea to get some help. Dogen teaches in this essay that, as he describes it, the practice and the realization that all the fully enlightened ancestors have guarded and maintained, he says, is non-defilement. That's a very interesting thing to say. He's saying the whole of the spiritual path that all the enlightened sages of the past have cared for and handed down to us, it's non-defilement. Non-defilement. So he tries to address what, what we think about the non-defilement. What does that mean? Because he's clearly playing with the duality we have between the defiled and the undefiled. That's what Hundertwasser was doing in his Holy Shit Manifesto. And Dogen says, even if the body and the mind are undefiled, we still have to take care of them. And we have specific practices for cleansing the body and cleansing the mind. Because remember, philosophy is how we do things. You think, look, man, I just want to go to the toilet. Yes, but Dogen's saying, how you do it expresses your whole philosophy of life and whether or not you actually have been able to accept yourself, accept reality and understand yourself and understand reality. And he makes it immediately ecological and cosmic. That's the kind of thinker Dogen is. He recognizes it's Well, it's all cosmic. It, It all matters all the way up and all the way down. And he says this Teaching on cleansing is not just about cleansing the body and mind, but cleansing the entire land and cleansing the places of sitting under trees. In other words, he's talking about the places of resting and meditating. He's talking about taking care of the whole. Cleansing your face is about cleansing the whole land even if the land's not polluted. He says, even if the land isn't polluted, cleansing it is still the intention of all enlightened beings. They never turn their back on it or give up, even if they become totally enlightened. It's just marvelous. But he says, quote, the essential meaning of cleansing is difficult to fathom. The method of cleansing is itself the essential meaning. Attaining the way is the method. End quote. Now that's one hell of a method. You see what he's saying? He's saying that attaining enlightenment is the method of cleansing. 
So how do I clean my face? Well, you attain enlightenment. That's the method for cleansing your face and cleansing the land. You attain, you realize wisdom, love, and beauty. That's the method for cleansing the world and cleansing yourself. It really gets it cosmic. It's, again, exactly what Hundred Wasser is saying. You pray before you eat, don't you? Well, how about before you brush your teeth? Then how about before you go to the toilet? And do you understand that it's reality going to the toilet? It's not me personally going to the toilet, but reality is going to the toilet. Sacred creation is going to the toilet. And Dogen's just trying to throw fresh cold water on our sleepy ego here and help to clean and purify us. And it's not easy because even talking about our dualistic conquest consciousness has meanings and habits and encrustations built up around the notion of cleaning, the notion of body, the notion of mind, all of it. And Dogen is saying, can you just put that all aside? Because if cleansing were so easy to understand, let alone understand, we wouldn't have all this mess in our heads and in our world. Your head's a mess. Your mind's a mess. How else do we get polluted rivers, lakes, and heaven help us, polluted oceans? Oceans! We realize how massive the oceans are, and yet we've got polluted oceans. How do you get a polluted ocean unless human beings have a tragic and astonishing misunderstanding of cleansing, including notions like pure and impure, clean and dirty, self and other, sacred and profane. And what we refer to as impure things, profane things, they often end up in the shadow. But in countless ways, proper cleaning ends up in the shadow too. Because we have confused minds. We can't think straight. We don't understand. And only a fully awakened mind understands cleaning. Because clearly, when we clean ourselves and our homes, we pollute the rivers. We don't clean the land. You see, Dogen saying, you wash your face, you're washing the land. Not us. We wash our face and we pollute the land. We pollute the rivers. Our cleaning products end up in there. Just as a for instance... Right? Our, our Clorox goes down the drain and our other kinds of soap go down the drain and those things end up in the rivers. When human beings clean anything, they make the world dirty, degraded, impure. We wash our cars. Think of how that goes, how much water we spend just to wash these things we drive around in. We talk about throwing things away, but there is no away. We can't flush anything away. And we need the kind of honesty that Dogen provides. We need this kind of confrontation with our shadow, with our whole mess and our messiness. Dogen makes it very intimate. It has to do with right now, right now. We wash our hands or we use our hands. We wash our paintbrush or we paint our canvas. We wash our teacup or we pour tea for a friend. We wash our bottom or sit under a tree. And in this right now, beyond past, present, and future, in this right now, this here of placelessness, we meet reality. We can realize the nature of mind and the mind of nature right now. Touch our own wildness. 
but only if we can shake loose the insanity. To help us shake loose the insanity, to help us clean and purify our thoughts, wash away the insanity, Dogen offers the following teaching. It goes like this. Water is not necessarily pure or impure by origin. The body is not necessarily pure or impure by origin. All things are like this. Water is not sentient or insentient. The body is not sentient or insentient. All things are like this. Dogen goes into detail, and we're talking detail, about how to wash our bottom if we happen to be meditating outside under a tree near a river, just as Buddha did. And we might be out there meditating, we have to defecate. And he describes exactly how to do it, including shaping little balls of dirt, little kind of pellets of dirt, and lining them up into two rows of seven pellets of dirt, and then using that dirt to clean our hands and body afterward. Now, in the context of describing this, he relates a story about a philosopher named Shariputra, who was one of Buddha's most exceptional students. Dogen tells us about a time when Shariputra converted someone, converted someone while cleaning himself up after defecating, Now, he didn't offer some, he didn't preach to the person. It's just that he was defecating. The person walked up and saw him clean up afterwards. And in seeing this, the person became converted. And so Dogen stresses this wasn't what Shariputra was looking to do. It wasn't why he, he just went there to go to the toilet. And it wasn't what the person who saw him was seeking. The person wasn't looking for someone going to the bathroom, defecating in the woods. And he wasn't seeking to receive teachings or become a follower of a new philosophy. But that's what happened. And why did it happen? Well, Dogen says it's because of Shariputra's awesome presence. A presence maintained in this potentially impure activity. Now, Shariputra has the status in Buddhist philosophy of an apostle in Christianity. So this would be very much like saying, well, you know, this one time a total heathen saw St. Peter washing up after defecating and he converted. So that's how, you know, the, the apostles did it. They just, they just took a shit and people converted. Or imagine that Saul on the road to Damascus had suddenly come across a Christian saint defecating and that had become his conversion experience. And you might say, well, that's, that's blasphemy. No, no. The very point is that a saint is not impure when defecating. Nor did God make any part of his creation impure. The question has to do with how we practice our life, how we practice our philosophy of life, whether we call it a religion or not. Because we have a philosophy of religion, too. That's why you get so many versions of Christianity. And also part of the point here is that these things present challenges to our dualistic mind. This isn't easy stuff to deal with. We think, well, I've just got a new idea now, and that's great. No. When we read Dogen, especially if somebody walks us through it a little bit, we can think we know what he's saying. 
But since Dogen invites us into total intimacy with our lives, a genuine wonderstanding can only come if we go line by line with a lot of meditation practice. So these few lines about Shariputra could teach us a lot. And the way to work with them is to hold the image in our hearts, like holding a candle outside on a dark, stormy night. We have to keep the flame protected from the wind in a certain way. We care for it. So we hold the image like a candle in the heart. Protect it from the storms of distraction, including merely intellectual musing. We could say that suffering means distraction. That's it. If we didn't get distracted from our own true nature and the true nature of reality, if we didn't get distracted away from nature and wildness and sacredness that is everywhere, as St. Hildegard told us, we wouldn't suffer. Sure, we'd still get sick. We'd still lose people we love. It'd be life, death, we'd have to die. But all of that would happen as part of our indestructible awakeness. Part of that which doesn't die. And we wouldn't suffer in the way that we do now, even if we felt pain, sadness, laughter, all the rest. But let's pause again, just at this place, and marvel at Shariputra. Can any of us imagine this? What a wild thing Dogen tells us here, that Shariputra, this Buddhist philosopher, practiced and realized such an awesome presence that some person with a fixed set of beliefs who had no interest in Shariputra's philosophy of life saw Shariputra cleaning his bottom after defecating and said, what the hell is this? Who is this dude? Who is this guy? I mean, can any of us imagine standing in the presence of someone so utterly unashamed of themselves? Not merely shameless or insensitive or crass. No, someone totally accepting and unashamed of themselves and thus totally accepting and unashamed of us too. What would it be like to meet a person like that? To be in the presence of someone whose basic dignity could not be defiled by any of their natural activity in the world. We have such a hard time staying undistracted from our basic dignity, our basic goodness. We have such a hard time accepting ourselves that some of what we can't accept, and that includes some of our basic dignity, goes into the unconscious. That in itself seems hilarious because we already have so many conscious things about ourselves that we find it hard to truly accept. And then we can only imagine what we might have in our unconscious, in our shadow. Our shit is at least partially in our shadow. Dogen has us face it without getting distracted. 
That's why he gives a detailed account of cleansing the body, inviting us to practice and realize our own basic goodness, basic dignity, our own awesome presence in the world, and even including affirmations to guide us, like this verse from the Flower Garland Sutra that monks should recite when washing their hands. You don't just wash your hands, but washing the hands you recite, washing my hands with water. May all sentient beings attain excellent hands for maintaining the teachings for awakening. That's really nice. To give back, to clean the land, to clean the world, to clean the mind, and not just wash the hands. And in a way, we could arrive at a place where we're just washing our hands because washing our hands is doing all those things. But we have to arrive at that. And Dogen emphasizes that anyone who fails to cleanse properly is not allowed to participate in the community. That's an echo, again, with Hundred Vossers, Holy Shit Manifesto, and St. Hildegard. Because he's not just talking about permission. He's not saying, hey, you don't keep yourself clean. We're not going to allow you on the meditation platform, my friend. You're not going to participate in the community if you don't take care of these basic things. It's not just about permission. If we human beings don't learn the deep and true meaning of cleanliness, if we don't learn our basic dignity and face our shadows more fully, we will not be allowed to participate in the community of life because it will fall apart. Or at the very least, as St. Hildegard said, we can get a reminder can have our participation revoked because that's how the divine made the world. If we're going to think we're wiser than the divine, okay, the creation will remind us. Now, before we conclude, I'd like to consider one last passage. This one's from Jung, and it's from his Memories, Dreams, Reflections. He writes about a powerful experience in his childhood that's related to what we're talking about. Now, he tells us that One lovely day, he came out of school and he went to the cathedral square. He describes it very nicely. He says that the sun shone brightly and the sky had a beautiful blue color. And as he stood there looking at the cathedral roof, glittering with its new and brightly glazed tiles, he felt overwhelmed with the beauty of it all. And he thought to himself, The world is beautiful, and the church is beautiful, and God made all this and sits above it, far away in the blue sky, on a golden throne, and and suddenly he experienced a hole in his own thoughts, and a choking sensation took hold of him. He felt numb. And the only thing he knew was that he had to stop thinking. He knew something terrible was coming in his thoughts, something too horrible to think, and he had to stop. And Jung does a wonderful job exploring the tension that he experienced over the next several days. As he struggled valiantly to stop this thought that kept threatening to come, and he felt God must be testing him 
and he tried so passionately to stop the thought, but he knew he couldn't hold out much longer. It's wonderful a few pages to read. And the story builds to a beautiful psychic tension leading up to the key moment when Jung musters all of his courage. He feels he's about to leap into the fires of hell <laughs> as he finally lets this thought come. He sees before him the cathedral and the blue sky. God sits on his golden throne high above the world. And then, and then, from under the golden throne, a gigantic turd falls down on the sparkling new roof of the cathedral and shatters it, smashing the walls of the cathedral and destroying the building. And Jung describes a feeling, not just of relief, but bliss. He felt bliss the likes of which he had never known in his young life, and he cried tears of joy and gratitude. <laughs> in confronting this shadowy thought, Jung felt he had received a great revelation that allowed him to understand many things he hadn't previously understood, but it also, of course, raised a lot of questions. And you can ponder some of those on your own, and you might turn to Jung's memories, dreams, reflections, and look at some of what he wrestled with. But to wrap up our con contemplation, I'd like to admit something that was in my shadow. Maybe it still is in a certain way, but I know that it was in the shadow. I realized this. It took some uh, memory digging. But singing was in my shadow for a long time. That's why I can't sing. And it's why I decided to sing here to bring a little light to the shadow. And we didn't have music playing in our home. No one played. Uh, I didn't have any. Uh, my mother or my grandparents didn't play an instrument. And I remember at one point that I told my, my mother what, was listening to Elvis. And I remember seeing like old uh, clips of him being performing on stage. And, you know, he just didn't look very good. And I told my mother, uh, she told me that Elvis died. And I told her, I think he must have died because of all that singing. And so consequently, I never learned how to sing. To this day, I can't actually do it. But the novel that I mentioned has quite a few songs in it, and some are originals. There are you know melodies that I maybe could remember. At the time, I had them in my mind, but I would, wouldn't know how to write down a melody. But I've written a lot of melodies in my mind and put them into this book. Others... Of the other of the songs are kind of like spiritual pastiche using old melodies, which I know uh, even Woody Guthrie used to use melodies that he would find and then put different lyrics to them. And so we'll close with a song that takes inspiration uh, from a strange statistic. It's the song from this book, and in the book there's mention of a statistic that I did once hear in real life, and it's maybe different now because I heard it from someone who was talking about um, researching it many years ago. And the thing is that in the first 35 years of life, someone claims that an average human being consumes and thus excretes 32,000 pounds of matter. And so if you know your maths and your measures, you know that comes to about 16 tons, which I thought was an interesting number. Now, this calculation, again, is done many years ago. Maybe the biggest consumers, most vigorous consumers, especially in the dominant culture, might consume more than that. But it does reference that 16 tons. 
<clears throat> which is kind of like a wake. You know, you can imagine the, the ship of your life in this wake falling out behind you of 16 tons. Now, the song does reference Zorba the Greek, and the author of that novel was from the same village on the island of Crete where my father was born and grew up. And uh, the author's name is Nikos Kazantzakis, and I'm Nikos Patadakis, and I may have mentioned in another contemplation some of this, that Greek names that end in K-I-S usually indicate a lineage from Crete. So in the novel, uh, the voice of the novel goes to Crete with Zorba, and Zorba had spent some time also as a miner digging lignite, which is sometimes referred to as brown coal. So that's, there's a line about Zorba digging lignite. And he's in there because Kazantzaki saw Zorba, like he could have called it, instead of Zorba the Greek, he could have called that novel Zorba the Buddha in a certain way. Zorba the Greek, the salt of the earth person, who is in some ways kind of profane, nevertheless presence is a kind of Buddha-ness. So that's why there's a, there's a Buddha in here. And this idea of the awake mind. So anyway, the main launching point for the song is this idea that we consume and excrete 16 tons of material during our first 35 years, which is a kind of significant point for Dante. That's the middle of the life path, and it's at that place where you enter midlife and you the, the beckoning of our spiritual uh, calling starts to become kind of unavoidable. Jung said that once people get into their 30s, and especially once they've hit 35, he said that there's not going to be a resolution to their problems that's not spiritual. That's what he felt. That maybe if you were in your 20s or early 30s, we might be able to help you feel less neurotic without getting into the spiritual things. But after that, there's a turning point and you're just not going to be satisfied. And we end up making ourselves unhappy because we won't turn toward spiritual and ecological realities. So this song, like the other one, kind of tries to get at them in a little bit of a goofy way. Not all the songs, I should say, are, are meant to be this goofy. But this one is a little more on the goofy side. Sixteen tons. What do you get? Thirty-five years. A mountain of shit. It's the weight of the weight. That we leave behind where the strong Buddha nature, a weak monkey mind. Sixteen tons is also what goes in, a little more if you're heavy, a little less if you're thin. Don't take a rhyme for the literal truth, it's not just food, it's the source of the tooth. Swallow sixteen tons, what do you get? Thirty-five years, a mountain of shit. You could be dead by the end of this song. Will you wake up now or will you wait too long? You may have seen the Buddha with the big round gut. He's laughing with you, but laughing at what? In a flash he puts his heart on your endless ache. The tears well up, your body quakes, consumes sixteen tons. What do you get, thirty-five years? A mountain of shit. You could be dead by the end of this song. Will you wake up now or will you wait too long? My granddad dug the black coal in the mine. Zorba dug lignite. Buddha dug mind. They breathed in the dust of this human life. They ate up the joys and drank up the strife. It came to sixteen tons every thirty-five years. The tailings are bindings, desires and fears. Zorba loved women, 
and granddad whine. Buddha danced it all with a ten-foot spine. A Buddha that tall won't fit in a shaft, but he can squeeze through a keyhole and unlock a laugh. The star of the morning twinkled his eye. He shook his light head and said, Me, oh my, every being here is awakened. But no one's been told they all act sleepy. They're all getting old with the shovel of attention. They could tunnel out of bed. I hope they start digging before they're dead. You load ton after ton, and what do you get? Older and older, more and more shit. You could drop dead as I finish this song. Wake up now. Don't wait too long. If you have questions or reflections about this contemplation, no questions or reflections on the bad singing. Send in your other questions or reflections, though, through wisdomloveandbeauty.org, and we might consider some of them in a future contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them, and don't flush them down the toilet.